No excuse. That is what I've got to bring out here as we get this edition of y'all up and going. I have no excuse not to give you a great show today because when you've already had, before you step up here to the microphone, some delicious pecan pie and some good old-fashioned southern sweet tea, if you can't do a show about the South without all that already in your system, then you just need to step aside. And I ain't going anywhere. <laughs> I'm John Rawl. This is the Y'all Show. Talk with an accent on everything Southern. Our website is yall.com. Y'all is the South's home page. Hope y'all are doing fantastic across the Southland. Got a rather active day weather-wise in portions of the South. Remnants of this tropical depression Fred mostly out of the southeast, but we still have a, a storm pushing its way toward Florida at this point. We'll bring you up to speed there, and then some breakout showers and thunder boomers and other portions of the south taking place today. So might want to check in on your local weather forecast if you have that availability. 803-816-1170. That is the way to get in touch with us here on the Y'all Show. You can text, you can call that number Anytime you have the opportunity, 803-816-1170. Also, we're available in podcast form here at the Y'all Show. If you miss any portion of the broadcast on one of our outstanding, unbelievably awesome radio affiliates, you can go listen to this show on your own schedule. All you got to do is go to y'all.com. We got the show posted right there. If that's not cool enough for you, Hey, that's where the cool kids go. But if you don't want to be a cool kid, you can also go to Spotify. The Y'all Show is right there on Spotify. And it is available at your leisure on Spotify. Just search Y'all Show. Boom, there it is. Also available on Stitcher, on the Apple Podcast app, and the TuneIn app. So many great ways for you to be able to keep up with what all is going on across the Southeast. And that's what we do each and every day on this, what we call the Y'all Show. Coming up on this Y'all Show, we've got headlines from across the southeast. We'll start off our headlines today, giving you the latest on the weather situation as we do have another storm. Grace is churning in the Caribbean, and it has strengthened into a hurricane. We'll give you the latest on the weather in the tropics. Also, the state of Alabama is currently out of ICU beds amid a COVID-19 surge in the heart of Dixie. We'll have information on that, plus more news out of Alabama. An Alabama Army National Guard soldier has died of COVID while on duty on the U.S.-Mexico border. We'll pass along that tragic news from the state of Alabama. Then, from a political standpoint, to Washington, D.C., we go, and can you believe that the person in charge of intelligence before the Capitol riot back on January 6th is back in their post they were relieved surely they were not going to be able to come back and this person is now back in charge how is that possible while this person is back on duty another story in recent months that's been a big news headline in the south at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill the journalism school dean stepping down after that controversy that took place after Nicole Jones 
was first denied tenure at UNC Chapel Hill. Then they said, okay, we'll have you here. And then she decides to go have and take off for Howard University in Washington, D.C. And the journalism school stepping down after all of this controversy at UNC. Also political-wise, a board in Georgia is reviewing Fulton County's elections, and there may be a takeover of Fulton County's elections. Ooh. The board of the state election board voted unanimously today to approve a bipartisan three-person review panel to investigate handling of elections in Fulton County. That's a game-changer, perhaps, if it stands. Of course, you know that lady, Stacey Abrams, is going to start screaming about, uh, what's their buzzword, Uh, voter suppression. That's what she's going to probably create more strikes and boycotts, and Atlanta's going to lose more things like the All-Star game for that. But, yeah, that's a story we'll be getting to in our headlines today. And speaking of the Washington, D.C. area and more, a Morgantown, West Virginia businessman who is accused of being a part of the Capitol Hill riot January 6th, still in jail despite a court some 10 days ago saying that he should be released. Why is this person still in jail? We'll have that. Plus, also in the Washington, D.C. area this weekend, a former NFL pro bowler will be at MGM National Harbor right there just downstream from Washington, D.C. And he, this pro bowler, who I think was with the Philadelphia Eagles, won a Super Bowl ring, John Dorenbos, a pro bowl long snapper for the Eagles when he played, he's going to be doing something magical in Washington, D.C., Stay tuned for the update on that, plus some business news. And this is a little bit shocking. South Carolina now has an airport that is the busiest airport in that state, and it's not your usual suspects. I'll tell you which of the South Carolina airports have seen their highest monthly passenger count ever recorded. And that has led this airport to be the top airport in the Palmetto State. If you are looking to get away, this spot in South Carolina just might be a good place for you to go because it looks like a lot of other people are headed that way too. That's all part of today's headlines. Sports-wise, not all that much going on from a sports standpoint on today's Y'all Show, but I'm sure you probably have already seen the footage of that Oakland Athletics pitcher, Chris Bassett, who had a cheek fracture from a line drive right in the face from games played on Tuesday. And a scary sight. I don't have a whole lot to add to that, but I will mention that here in today's Y'all Show. A Deshaun Watson update, as well as a bizarre story coming from the South Carolina Gamecock football team. They have a quarterback, their, their presumed starter, Luke Doty, got injured the other day in a scrimmage, and he's questionable for week one against, let's see, Eastern, Eastern Illinois is the Gamecocks' first opponent this year. And so... The new coach in Columbia, Shane Beamer, is getting creative. He needed another quarterback. And in our sports headlines today, I'll tell you something about how Shane Beamer, Gamecock football coach, is doing something about his roster, making a change that, frankly, I've never seen done before in college football. Maybe it's just been done and I haven't seen it, but a creative way to beef up his roster 
from the Columbia, South Carolina headlines we go and our sports coverage of today's y'all show. And in terms of college football and college sports, we will be taking you to Aggie land today as the Texas A&M Aggies are our featured school. Texas A&M, part of our 44-city tour across the southeast, getting you ready for the start of the 2021 college football season. We'll hear from Jimbo Fisher, head coach of A&M. We'll talk about the schedule. We'll talk about the great success that Fisher's already had. But A&M paid this guy about $10 million a year to come into that portion of Texas, into Aggieland, and send them to the mountaintop of college football. They have to win an SEC championship. They've got to compete for a national championship, and likely they want him to win a national championship for the maroon and white. And today, our number one, we'll walk through A&M's 2021 schedule. Many people predict this school, just like in 2020, to be right there in the top ten when the season is over. Do they have what it takes to knock off Alabama in the regular season? Do they have the it factor to get to Atlanta for the first time, representing the Southeastern Conference's Western Division? Is this a year that Jimbo Fisher can do it in Aguiland? Now, he'll have to do it with another quarterback as Mond has departed A&M. And we'll discuss more about the upcoming season and more about the history of A&M football here, hour one. Hour number three, we will talk about Texas A&M as a university, the giant university that is in College Station and Bryan, as well as Texas A&M's rich Corps of Cadets. That's a big part of A&M. The ring is a big part of A&M world. And, and the other traditions from the gigum and the thumb sign for gigum to how they sway the yell leaders and more, it's, it, they really have a whole section of their 12thman.com website devoted to their traditions. And if you're an Aggie, you really, really are pretty passionate about your traditions. And if you're not an Aggie... Yeah, you you probably despise what Texas A&M does. And they probably, I've heard a lot of people in Texas tell me, man, the Maggie people are annoying. They're just just a different type. They're just a different type. That's a nice way of saying it. They don't really get along with Aggies. Hey, we'll just tell you like it is. Again, all this coming from 12thman.com. We'll discuss the Aggie tradition. We'll talk about Aggie alumni, some of the most famous Texas A&M alumni. All that is part of our feature of Texas A&M University here today on the Y'all Show Hour 3. It's when we really dive deep into that portion of A&M. Also in Hour 2 today, we will have a special, speaking of Texas, we've got a lot of Texas connections here on today's Y'all Show. Hour 2 today, in addition to telling you all the news and sports goings on, we will have audio from Texas author Sandra Brown. She's got a book right now, and it is number three. It just got on the New York Times bestsellers list because it's brand new. And Sandra Brown, a Texas redhead, has her latest book out, and she was just interviewed by the Poison Pen Bookstore's Barbara Peters talking about this brand new read 
and we're going to hear a portion of that interview as a Southern author spotlight. Sandra Brown, that's coming up hour two, will also tell you the latest best-selling books in addition to what Sandra Brown has out for people to purchase. There are other books worth reading, and I'll share with you some of those great reads available when we get to that portion of the Y'all Show later today. Diving into the headlines of the Southeast and more, as mentioned, we now have another hurricane to be worried about as Hurricane Grace is now formed in the Caribbean. And this follows Fred, the tropical depression that has drenched much of the Southeast. In fact, Fred knocked out power for tens of thousands of Southerners and ended up flooding cities, roads, and interstates. And just fresh off of Fred, which came in near Panama City, Florida, on Monday, spawning tornadoes throughout Florida, Georgia, flooding rural Appalachia with northeast Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, more. As of this morning, Fred had knocked out power for more than 21,000 customers in North Carolina and 13,000 West Virginia customers out of power because of Fred. So this one ultimately is away from the South today, thank goodness. But we still have our eyes on the tropics as Tropical Storm Grace has now strengthened into a hurricane and it is over the northwestern Caribbean Sea. Grace has already affected earthquake damage Haiti and it is looking to possibly go toward the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico over the next 24 hours. A hurricane warning in effect for the Yucatan from Cancun to Punta Herrero. That includes Cozumel, And you also have a tropical storm warning in effect for the Cayman Islands and the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico from north of Cancun to Campeche and from south of Punta Herrero to Porto Costa Maya. And that thing could end up making a northern turn after it goes across that portion of Mexico. So just be on the lookout. We've got plenty of time. But this one is, it looks like, in the Caribbean and it looks like it's into the Gulf of Mexico or going to be there. Hurricane Grace making headlines. Also making headlines is COVID-19. And a story out from the heart of Dixie as Alabama is out of ICU beds amid a COVID-19 surge. As that state with over 2,700 patients currently hospitalized with covid 19 symptoms and cases, many of which can be very, very critical. Ventilators involved and more. As Alabama has run out of ICU beds amid this latest surge of the Delta variant, president of the Alabama Hospital Association, Dr. Don Williamson, told a local news outlet that as of Tuesday, there were 1,568 ICU patients in Alabama but only 1,557 beds. Very, very rough to tell you this. Again, according to Dr. Don Williamson, he said, we've never been here before. We are in truly now in uncharted territory in terms of our ICU bed capacity. Now, Dr. Williamson went on to say, in some areas of Alabama, hospitals are being forced to transfer ICU, ICU patients to other departments, meaning 
ICU care is taking up space needed for other treatment areas. Alabama has seen a total of over 640,000 COVID-19 cases since the pandemic began, with the entire state currently experiencing high levels of community transmission. And unfortunately, this story is all too familiar with just about every state in the South and many other states around the country. As of today, Mississippi has opened up its second field hospital, with this one situated on the University of Mississippi Medical Center campus just north of downtown Jackson. The first field hospital opened there a week ago, and now they've got a second one, probably right beside the football stadium north of downtown Jackson, Mississippi. A spokesperson for the U of M Medical Center in Jackson, Mark Rolfe, said, it's unbelievable that we're doing this again within, what, six days? And in just a week, Mississippi saw the number of hospitalized patients double, and that's caused hospitals to become overrun in that state. Tennessee also being hit hard. Many, if not all, of our southern states, and many, if not the majority of our entire country, really getting pummeled right now with COVID-19 and this Delta variant is something to take seriously. And we're not here on a high horse or a pedestal to tell you what to do, but I can tell you that in the last 24 hours, I've known people who were very adamant about not getting the vaccine because of friends or coworkers who've come down with this thing and have had a real, real rough time with it. Some of my friends and coworkers have changed their tune And it's better, perhaps, to have the vaccine and have some of the maybe unwanted problems with the vaccine. It's better to have that happen than than to get COVID-19 and suffer and perhaps die from this awful, dreadful thing. Another Alabama COVID-19-related story. An Army National Guard soldier from the state of Alabama has died by COVID while on a border mission on the U.S.-Mexico border. Montgomery, Alabama, Sergeant Kellis Armstrong died Saturday, according to Army National Guard officials from Alabama. He was on active duty status, this Alabama Army National Guard, Sergeant Kellis Armstrong. He died from COVID-19 two weeks after testing positive for the virus. His sister said he died from COVID-19 and described him as a wonderful man. Armstrong was a soldier with the Alabama Army National Guard's 2025th Transportation Company, 711th Combat Sustainment Support Battalion, 122nd Troop Command. He was deployed in support of the Southwest Border Mission. He was a very decorated soldier and... Again, dying while on active duty, on assignment with the Alabama Army National Guard. Our thoughts with the family and and to the sacrifice of Sergeant Armstrong going off on a mission and ended up dying of COVID-19. Just unfortunate, unfortunate. We'll have more headlines from across the Southeast that we'll be getting to here on Talk with the Southern Accent. Stay tuned. Those headlines will continue on in our number two. When we come back, we have 
a brief update on what's going on on the sports front across the South. That's coming up. Plus, before the hour is up, we'll tell you all about the 2021 edition of the Texas A&M Aggies. Get your gigam on. We'll be right back. are back on the show that covers everything across the southeast 803-816-1170 is the way to get in touch with all of us here at the show covering dixie i'm john rawl the general of all things southern thanking you for taking time out of your very busy day to join us here for a little discussion of what's going on in the southland today and right now we take a few moments to tell you about what's going on from a college and professional sports standpoint across the southeast today. This did not happen in the south, but did you see that scary play from Tuesday's Major League Baseball action? Oakland A's pitcher Chris Bassett suffered a cheek fracture, and it was a nasty, nasty shot he took on his cheek. A line drive hit off of the Chicago White Sox batter. Now, luckily, Chris Bassett, his vision unaffected by this awful line drive, but it will require surgery after he was hit in the head during the Tuesday game. The team has put out a statement today, the Oakland athletics, along with a displaced tripod fracture in his right cheek. The A's pitcher received stitches for two facial lacerations. The A said Bassett's vision is normal and that no other eye or head injuries were found and he was released Tuesday night from a Chicago hospital. And the A's went on to put out a statement saying that they are grateful to the Chicago White Sox, their medical staff, and the doctors and nurses at Rush University Medical Center for their excellent care. And they'll have more information on Chris as it becomes available. Bassett, the Ohio native, was carted off the field in the second inning after he was hit by a ball that came off the bat of Chicago White Sox center fielder Brian Goodwin. A bat and a, and a ball traveling, I guess they call that exit velocity, 100.1 miles per hour. According to the A's manager Bob Melvin, pitcher Bassett never lost consciousness. The 32-year-old the 32-year-old Bassett is 12-4 and with a 3.22 ERA this season, and he earned his first all-star selection this year. Right now, Oakland is tied for the two American League wildcard spots with the Yankees and the Red Sox. Scary situation from Major League Baseball on Tuesday. And it brings up the discussion about that proposed deal from a couple years ago that I don't think got a lot of steam. Remember the talk about pitchers wearing those kind of reinforced hats they're almost like a helmet hat we had i believe it was in minor league baseball one base coach about eight ten years ago got hit by a line drive and died and that caused major league baseball 
to force all coaches, all base coaches, to wear helmets. And now that's the standard. You don't see, to my knowledge, any more base coaches, first or third base, wearing just your traditional baseball cap, even though they normally would have plenty of time to dodge a ball or or put a hand up to block the ball coming at them. They're a little bit further away than what a pitcher is. But with a pitcher standing on that mound and have they have pitching on their mind, not necessarily playing defense, it's a scary thing when that ball comes right back at a pitcher. And in this case, Chris Bassett, it went right on his cheekbone and broke it. And we wish him all the best. He will likely not pitch anymore in 2021. And I hope the A's don't suffer because of this because this guy was having a remarkable season for the left coast green and gold ball club. But thankfully, I, I'm not aware of too many more baseball injuries that involve pitchers other than this story. It's been a while. And in softball, generally, most of these pitchers wear that, I would call it, goofy-looking thing on their face that a lot of your college softball and high school softball players probably mandated in a lot of cases that they wear those things. But they wear them for a reason. Because just like in baseball, softball, when that ball gets knocked up the middle, it can do a lot of damage. And those things come off that bat so fast and furious. And I hate that this guy may have to be done for the rest of the year. Hopefully it won't affect his career moving beyond this season. An update from the NFL. The FBI is investigating allegations against Deshaun Watson, quarterback of the Houston Texans. And included in this investigation is possible extortion. Now, Deshaun Watson has had allegations of sexual assault and inappropriate behavior against him. And he's being investigated currently by the FBI, according to his lawyer, Rusty Harden. Harden also said that Deshaun Watson spoke to the FBI about allegations of extortion regarding one of the 23 lawsuits filed against the quarterback, of which 22 are still active. So in this case, it sounds like the extortion is not coming from Watson. It's coming from one of these lawsuits that were filed, possibly frivolous lawsuits. Maybe all of them are frivolous lawsuits. But his attorney, Rusty Harden, representing his client, coming out saying that there is a possibility that extortion is involved maybe with one of these ladies who came out accusing him and maybe, just maybe, in Deshaun Watson's defense, in that one case, she might be trying to take his money for no reason or have him just give her money because of the threat that she might run to the law enforcement officials. Deshaun Watson used to play his college ball in the state of South Carolina for the Clemson Tigers. In the state of South Carolina, down a road a bit from Clemson is the state capital of Columbia. And some news out of Columbia as the Gamecocks have their own quarterback situation they are trying to solve. Luke Doty went down recently in a scrimmage, and he's going to be out for a few more weeks with a sprained ankle and is questionable to play in the Gamecocks season opener September 4th against the Eastern Illinois Panthers. So right now, or as of two days ago, brand-new coach Shane Beamer of the Gamecocks 
had a little bit of a crisis he had to solve. He only had three quarterbacks with Doty being out. He only had three quarterbacks on his roster. He even moved a former quarterback over to be one of the quarterbacks because of the shortage of that position. And so he really, if that was the case, he only had two quarterbacks that were primarily historic in being a quarterback, I guess would be the term. So what did he do about it? As Shane Beamer said, he likes to have at least four quarterbacks. He said when he was at Oklahoma, they had six quarterbacks on the roster. And even though some of those guys may never see the light of day on the playing surface, by having quarterbacks on your roster, you're able to utilize them all in practice situations. Sometimes football teams, likely a lot of times, especially when they're going through their fall drills, they split up the team. They'll have one unit on one side of the campus or one side of the practice fields and a whole other unit on the other side, and they want to have multiple quarterbacks able to help out the split squad. And with Doty being out, you only had three, so that meant on half of the practice plan, you only had one quarterback. And I'm sure they wanted to mix in stuff and give the quarterback a break and not overdo that quarterback, wear his arm out, kind of like a pitcher in fall camp. So with that in mind, the Gamecocks have elevated a guy who was already there in the building, already part of the South Carolina football program. But this guy was not a student. He was a graduate assistant coach, Zeb Nolan, who came to Columbia to be a graduate assistant in Shane Beamer's program. Zeb Nolan, I think it was two years ago, was a quarterback at Iowa State and then transferred to North Dakota State where he backed up the quarterback that would go on to be the number two draft pick by the San Francisco 49ers. Zeb Nolan did a good job in his one-time playing Oklahoma, so much so that Shane Beamer remembers Nolan when he was an Iowa State Cyclone quarterback. So he brought him in as a graduate assistant coach, but Nolan still had some eligibility left. And it looks like Shane Beamer has talked to Zeb, great name by the way, and said, hey, Zeb, who I think is a Georgia native, why don't you come and instead of being a graduate assistant right now, take advantage of your year that you have of eligibility and help us on our team. Because according to Shane Beamer, Nolan's got far more game experience than any of the current quarterbacks, including Luke Doty on the Gamecock roster. And so, again, South Carolina tapping a graduate assistant coach to come shed the clipboard and be a player. And that's what they're doing now with this young man getting a chance to go be the Gamecocks quarterback. He was Trey Lance's backup for the North Dakota State Bison, and he hardly got a chance to throw and be a quarterback at North Dakota State, except for this spring. He actually played ball a few months ago because North Dakota State, like the rest of FCS football, had a spring schedule. And so at Iowa State, or he, he did get to play there, but he's had over 1,200 yards already that he's amassed in his time as a college football quarterback. And he's got this chance to go be a quarterback for an SEC program. Pretty unusual thing. Again, as I mentioned earlier, I've never heard of a 
graduate assistant dropping down <laughs> and becoming a student again and being a player. And that's what this guy's doing with the South Carolina Gamecock football team. We will keep SEC football talk going after the break. Stay tuned. Today on our Y'all Show, we are all about the Texas A&M Aggies. And we'll hear from Jimbo Fisher, and we'll discuss the 2021 schedule for Texas A&M. Get your gigam on. We'll do that right after the break. The South and college football have enjoyed a love affair for more than 150 years. And the Y'all Show is getting y'all ready for the biggest year college football's ever had. We're on a 44-city tour of Dixie's great college football teams. John Rawl is getting you ready when the toe meets leather Labor Day weekend. So get your chin strap on and get ready for today's Southern College Football Tour stop. Here's Johnny. In Aggie land, they do things a wee bit different. And it's Texas A&M, today's featured school, as we walk through the South's great colleges, getting you ready for the start of the 2021 season. Texas A&M had one heck of a 2020 season under Jimbo Fisher. They're ready. They're ready to come out. They're ready to march out. And at Kyle Field... The Corps of Cadets and all of the Yale leaders are ready for the 2021 football season. Hey, we are too. Speaking of the A&M Corps of Cadets, take it away, fellows, with the fight song. I like that part of the song that the famous Texas A&M Aggie band plays. This is our spotlight of Texas A&M Aggie Traditions football team of 21. Jimbo Fisher, Gigum, Reveille, and so much more. I'm General John Rawl, CSA Certified Southern American. Here this hour, we'll tell you about Jimbo Fisher's team. We'll walk through the schedule real quick. We'll hear from the Aggies head coach and his top ten football program. In fact, heck, I think they might be in the top five. If I need to go back and refresh my browser, I will and tell you exactly. I don't want to. I don't want to cheapen what Jimbo Fisher's got going on in Aggie Land. But in College Station, they are pumped up for what is going to be taking place here in the 2021 season. Texas A&M begins the season on September 4th when the golden flashes of Kent State come in for a non-conference game at Kyle Field. It is going to be 7 o'clock Aggieland time time between Kent State and A&M. How about this game? On September 11th, all the way out in Denver at Mile High Stadium, the Aggies and the Colorado Buffaloes in a mid-September matchup there at Empower Field. 
September 18th. The New Mexico Lobos come over to Kyle Field for a game. Then SEC play begins in Arlington as the A&M Aggies and Arkansas get together for the Southwest Classic. On October 2nd, the Aggies welcome in to College Station the Mississippi State Bulldogs. Then, on October 9th, maybe the biggest game on the SEC schedule this year, it is the Alabama Crimson Tide and the Aggies. This is at Kyle Field on October 9th. That's going to be a big one. The Aggies have a road game at Mizzou on October 16th. They have South Carolina coming in to College Station on October 23rd. They also have the Auburn Tigers setting foot on campus on November 6th. They'll be in the Grove in Oxford. It's the Aggies at Mississippi on November 13th. Out of conference against their neighbor from just down the highway, Prairie View A&M comes in for a game on November 20th. The Aggies will be at LSU to wrap up the regular season, and that game set for November 27th. That is Thanksgiving weekend when the Aggies and Ed Orgeron's LSU Tigers battle at Tiger Stadium. So, as we know, A&M is projected to be one of those teams that could be competing and likely will be competing for a national championship here in 2021. Let's kind of have the John take on their schedule. What games are definite losses out of the 12-game schedule? Kent State is definitely not a definite loss. I think they can win at Colorado. They ought to be able to beat New Mexico. They normally beat Arkansas this game at Arlington. They should beat Mississippi State at home. Okay, October 9th is definitely less than a 50% chance of winning against Alabama, but it's definitely something Jimbo Fisher is going to have his team up and ready for, and they've got a real opportunity to shock the world against number one Alabama on October 9th. They are at Missouri. That's a winnable game. They've got South Carolina coming in. They've got Auburn coming in. All these are winnable games. They got a tricky game because we don't know just how good Lane Kiffin's Land Sharks from the University of Mississippi are going to be. That that's going to be right at a 50-50 game, I would think, for A&M on November 13th. No doubt they should beat Prairie View A&M. And I think if they've got a lot going positive for them this year, when they get to that final regular season game at Tiger Stadium, they ought to be able to knock off LSU. So. Take away Alabama, that could be a loss for them. This is an 11-1 team. I would say at worst, this is a 10-2 team heading into the end of the season. But there's, there's, I would say, a 40% chance this team could be undefeated at the end of the regular season. This could be your West representative in the SEC championship. This could be your undefeated untied and untamed Texas A&M Aggie football team for 2021. That would be something special. Remember, although this is a very historic program, a program that started playing football 127 years ago, back in 1894, the championships at Texas A&M have been few and far between. They have claimed in Aggieland three national titles, 1919 1927-1939. They haven't won a national title since Hitler invaded Poland. They have at least claims to only one Big 12 title. They won 17 Southwest Conference titles, but they won only one Big 12 title in all the years they were part of that conference. And that was 1998. 
And in the Southwest Conference under R.C. Slocum, they did win in 91, 92, and 93. Jackie Sherrill had a couple of Southwest Conference's victories and championships back in the mid-'80s, but they've really struggled. Even Paul Bear Bryant in his time in Aggieland only had one conference championship. That was 1956 where he went 9-0-1, and they did not win a national championship in 56. So as big of a school as A&M is, that that size school currently right at 70,000 students called Texas A&M home that are currently enrolled, and you add all the alumni, they should have no problem with the riches and resources that this big school in the SEC has going for it. Now, Athlon Sports, they have their own projection for the 2021 season for A&M. The Aggies were 9-1 and one in 2020. Remember, I don't think it was Mississippi. They didn't play Mississippi last year because of a COVID outbreak. So they won nine. They won eight SEC games and lost to Alabama. They were 8-1 and one in the SEC, and then they won the Orange Bowl against North Carolina, finished fourth in the polls at the end of the 2020 season, the highest final ranking since winning the national championship in 1939. But this year, with Kellen Mond gone, you've got to reload. And looking at the A&M offense, SEC all-conference running back Isaiah Spiller should be able to help this team. He had over 1,000 yards rushing last season. And then you've got great receivers like Anaya Smith. Jalen Widmeyer also looks to have a protective role for Jimbo Fisher's team as a tight end. And then you've got people coming back from injuries like Caleb Chapman on offense. And then that question about who's going to be the quarterback. Haynes King is a candidate. He's got wonderful speed, evidently. And then Zach Caldaza has a great arm, according to this Athlon Sports article. And then for the defense, they've got all-SEC tackle Bobby Brown the third, and he's going to be trying to stop all of the opponents in their tracks when the A&M Aggies suit up and play football in 2021. According to this Athlon article, they've got them at number six when it's all said and done. So they've got, I would say, two losses on this schedule It could be a playoff situation. It could be a bowl game they end up losing. But they've got them wrapping up the year almost at the same spot they were last year. They were number four last year, number six this year. Jimbo Fisher, the Clarksburg, West Virginian, the 55-year-old West Virginian who played college football as a quarterback for the Samford Bulldogs in Birmingham, Alabama, and went on to be a – pro for a brief time with the Chicago Bruisers. And now Jimbo Fisher, who was FSU's coach for many years before going to College Station to be the Aggies coach, has a chance to get back to the spotlight. He led Florida State to the 2013 National Championship, a big win over Auburn in that National Championship game of 2013 season. And in his, what would be his fourth year now, in his three previous years of leading the Maroon and White Jimbo's gone from 9-4 and four in year one. That was back in 2018. 
Went nine and four to eight and five, nine and one in 2020 with that big number four final ranking. And all eyes are on Coach Fisher and what he's got planned for 2021. Let's go in and hear Jimbo Fisher. He had a press availability this week as his fall camp began. And here is the head coach of the Aggies talking about his 2021 Gigum football team. Been exciting to get back in camp. I think our guys are doing a really nice job, uh, continuing to progress, really starting to get into camp very heavily now, the bangs, bruises, and finding how much you love football. The beginning of the first couple of days, the shine wears off, and you can't see the end of the rainbow quite yet for the season, so you find out how much you really like going into practice each and every day, and the guys are doing a good job. We're continuing to get better, and you know, very excited. Our young guys, I think our freshman class has really, uh, like I said, I wouldn't so if you're, you're fishing, you wouldn't throw any of them out alive. Well, I promise you that. You, you like keeping who you got. Uh, we're happy with those guys. There's some really talented guys, and uh, guys are working very hard and fit right in. That's the thing. They they fit in not only body size athletically, but mentally they're, they're learning how to go. And, it's again, it's practice a lot harder than they've ever been experienced in it, but guys are really doing a good job of adjusting and doing it. Older guys are doing a good job. Uh, Making progress progressions and across the board in you know offense, defense, special teams, but you know we're still so early. We have got a lot of things to go. We're still in huge installation parts and different segments. As, you know, we just started our th- heavy, heavy third down the other day. A couple of days of that, we're in the red zone now. Now we're we'll get into the two minute situations and all those different things. So there's you know all those uh, situational things in a game that uh, not only takes the physical toll of what's going on, but the mental toll of how to execute, what to do, what to expect, and how certain play calls or defenses change based off of all those scenarios. And our guys are learning and adapting and uh, getting better. But, you know, right where we are in camp, uh, about where I thought, I mean, tons of work to do, but very pleased with the guys we have, have the ability to do it, and the guys are working very hard. So, And that was the head coach of the Texas A&M Aggies speaking this week as his Aggies prepare for that season opening game against the Kent State Golden Flash set for September 4th at Bryan College Station's Kyle Field. We'll have more on Texas A&M tradition and famous alumni in hour number three. Up next on the Y'all Show, Melissa Rhodes has a southern accent. Southern accent. Here's an accent on the south from y'all.com. I'm Melissa Rhodes. Southerners are gathering this time of year for the two-century tradition of sacred harp singing, or shape note singing. It is performed a cappella and originated in New England before heading south before the Civil War. In recent years, the singing style has become an event at gatherings across the region. Sacred harp's tradition of the singing master is still carried on today, and singing masters from traditional sacred harp regions often travel outside the south to teach. In recent years, a summer camp, Camp Fasola, has been established in Huntsville, Alabama, at which newcomers can learn to sing sacred harp. Here's a sample of one of the recent summer gatherings in the Mid-South. Sacred harp singing, an angelic sound. Southern history, fun, and more at y'all.com. All right, great stuff. Sacred harp singing. If you don't know anything about that, please do yourself a favor and kind of look it up. It's a big deal for a lot of Southerners. And I can't help but think of the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And that song from that movie, I I guess that would fall under a sacred harp singing style. Oh, man, just as as Melissa just told us, kind of angelic. 
Well, all you angels of the South, stay tuned. We got a whole nother hour of the show that covers everything across the South. Stay tuned. We got a great author interview coming up as Texas writer Sandra Brown has a brand new book out. We'll hear from her. Plus, we'll have all the news and sports info coming up, too. This is The Y'all Show. Back we are on Y'all Talk with a Southern Accent here on this show for all of you who are not paying attention and all of you Yankee Americans listening in. We are about the South, you know, the greatest part of the entire country, the part of the country that has nearly 50% of the American population, the part of the country that virtually all Yankees want to come to at some point because why do you want to shovel snow when you could sit on the white sandy beaches of pick a spot in the south does it really matter or you could travel to the mountains of the south that's a lot better than some of these other places that aren't southern all right enough of the gospel that i'm laying down i don't have to tell you all how great the south is you're probably a southerner but all of you northern americans or western americans or far east americans that would be new england Take time to give the South a little bit of credit because we do have a pretty special place and we got great food, we got great people, we got great music, we got great books. And speaking of great books, we've got a Southerner whose brand new book, Blind Tiger, is on the New York Times bestseller list, brand new this week at number three. And you're going to get a chance to hear from Texas author Sandra Brown. She was just interviewed by the Poison Pen Bookstore's Barbara Peters. We've got a sample of that great interview talking about Blind Tiger. And this book from Sandra Brown, and she talks about this in the clip, is a breakaway from what everybody else is writing about right now. She took the opportunity of last year's COVID-19 pause, and instead of talking about the turmoil of 2020 and the COVID-19 outbreak, this great Southern author, Sandra Brown, decided to take it back 100 years. And so her book is set in the roaring 20s and the crazy, crazy thing about Blind Tiger is the incredible similarities between what was happening 100 years ago and what's happening today from all of the diseases going on. You had the Spanish flu of 1919 and 1920. Today, you've got the China virus, the Wuhan virus, COVID-19, take your pick. That's going on today. You also had, 100 years ago, people out leading marches and trying to get people to the polls and, and trying to have a big change with society. In 2021, we know that most of that is Black Lives Matter and the activists more from a racial standpoint. Today, a hundred years ago, the people out marching and pushing and, and getting reform because they got the 19th Amendment passed. It was the suffragist. And that was happening a hundred years ago. And author Sandra Brown 
talks about that as her latest book, Blind Tiger, is a flashback to 100 years ago. And again, later this hour in our Southern Author Interview Showcase, you're going to have a chance to hear from this very talented and very successful best-selling writer, Sandra Brown. Before the hour is up, we also have a look at other books besides Sandra that is currently high on the New York Times bestsellers list. All that book talk coming later this hour. We also have some sports info that we'll be passing along in the next segment. We'll start off this hour with more headlines from across the southeast. But let me also take this moment to remind you that on the Y'all Show, you are part of the fun. We need y'all to be part of the fun. And the way to do that is go to our website. It is y'all.com. That is the South's homepage, y'all.com. Also, go check out our text line where you can text us on your own schedule. That number, 803-816-1170. Very, very, very easy for you to kind of stay on top of things by texting us a question, a comment, a suggestion. I mean, I do the show. It's great to do the show. I love doing the show. But it would be so much better for all of y'all if you would just chime in and join in on the show, be a part. Because here on this show, this is kind of like a partnership. And it's called the Y'all Show for a couple of reasons. But one of this reasons, one of the main reasons it's called the Y'all Show is it is about y'all. And I can sit here and talk and, and go through what's going on. But man, it would be so much better if you could just tune us in and, and you could help us and share ideas. And we, we have help. You might have been able to tune in. On our Tuesday Y'all Show, we had a great interview with Mr. Reeves. Mr. Reeves turned 98 years old, and he, a native of Ashland in North Mississippi. And on Tuesday's Y'all Show, this great Southerner, Walter Reeves, was here in front of us here at the Dixie Cafe having his 98th birthday party. And we couldn't let that slide. We asked his daughter. Unfortunately, Mr. Reeves was not quite able to get up here and join us in person. So we had his daughter speak for him. And it was a great conversation. If you missed that, those are all available. All 500. What is the count? I need to pull this up real quick. If you're just kind of finding out about the Y'all Show on one of our awesome radio stations across the southeast, or if you are scanning Spotify or... Apple Podcast or whatever podcast option you like to use and you've never heard our show before or you haven't taken too much time to learn about our show, we've been doing this show for three years, pushing four years, and it's been an absolute joy to do it. And we've been doing it through, just like every other radio show and station, doing it through some tough times here in the last year and a half. But we have eclipsed over 500 episodes of the Y'all Show since we got going. And it is really, it's quite an honor to say that, first of all. But secondly, it kind of makes you start feeling rather old (laughs) when you know that you've been doing something for over, not days, not 500 days, 532 episodes in the can of the Y'all Show. 
and you can go listen to every single one of them. And, and most of them are at least two hours. Most of them are three hours now of the Y'all Show. So we've got well over a 1,000 hours of content. If you've got a couple thousand hours available, you can catch up with what's going on across the southeast. And you can do that at y'all.com. You can do that also on our podcast partners, Spotify, Apple Podcast, the TuneIn app, the Apple Podcast app, the iHeartRadio app, and Stitcher as well. All of those, the only requirement is they're free. You just have to add them to your smartphone or your iPad. And then after you add them, you go looking for us. It's one thing to have the app on your phone, but you got to go find the Y'all Show. So what you do is you go in there, and they usually have a little magnifying glass icon. You search Y'all Show, and chances are right there you will see the Y'all Show logo. And then in the case of, let's say, Spotify, you have the choice of following is what they the term they use. And you just click follow, and boom. Each and every day we have a new episode of the Y'all Show, which we kind of just magically show up. So it's great. It's great for all of you who listen to us on our fantastic lineup of radio stations, and we appreciate all of our great radio affiliates for carrying us. But sometimes you you got other things going on in life and you just kind of miss out on portions of the show. We give you the chance to catch up, and that's what our podcast edition of the Y'all Show does. So thank you for being a part of Talk with a Southern Accent. Let's dive into, as we start hour number two today, with some news headlines taking place across the Southeast. And today on the Y'all Show, we already have told you about how a new hurricane has formed around the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico. It is Hurricane Grace, and this follows the hills of Tropical Depression Fred, which has dumped lots of rain and some tornadoes across much of the south in the last couple of days. Grace has already pelted Haiti, which is still recovering from that deadly earthquake, which cost over a 1,000 Haitians their lives. And now this Grace is hitting portions of the eastern Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico, and that's around Cancun, a hurricane warning today in effect for Cancun all the way to Punta Herrero. Cozumel is affected by this. And you've got a tropical storm warning in effect for the Cayman Islands and the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico from north of Cancun to Campeche. So we're keeping an eye on that. I don't know the latest forecast of if that thing's going to turn more to a northern direction and come on up in the Gulf of Mexico to affect some of our southern states in the Gulf of Mexico. But keep an eye going forward on Hurricane Grace. This just after Tropical Depression Fred has left its mark across the southeast. In Alabama, they have run out of ICU beds this week. Over 2,700 patients currently hospitalized in Alabama's hospitals. And according to the president of the Alabama Hospital Association, that as of Tuesday, there were 1,568 ICU patients, but only 1,557 beds for ICU patients. So right there, they are 11 short just on Tuesday alone. And Alabama, no exception to states in the South getting hit 
hard by the Delta variant. Wednesday, today in Mississippi, the Magnolia State opened up its second field hospital at the University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson. Now, they just had a field hospital open up in Jackson last week at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. So in less than a week, they've got two gigantic field hospitals. The kind of thing you would normally see set up at like a battlefield, for goodness sakes, or a massive natural disaster. And here, and just Alabama and Mississippi together, hitting such awful numbers in terms of COVID-19 cases. Tennessee also feeling the effects, Arkansas and more. Just a rough, rough time across the country in terms of what's going on with COVID-19. Another story out of the state of Alabama in Creola, Alabama, that is in the Mobile area, police suspect a murder-for-hire plot after two men were shot in an Alabama home. Now, on Sunday night at a home in Creola, Tracy Reeves went to her husband and told him there was an intruder in the home, and that led to gunfire. Hmm. Sounds pretty pretty uh, like a movie, doesn't it? Sounds rather scary. Now, what Tracy Reeves did not tell her husband was the person inside the home was her longtime boyfriend, Michael Amaker, who had been living in the home without the husband's knowledge for more than a day. That, according to the Mobile County Sheriff's Office. As the Sheriff's Office said that Tracy had been allowing him to stay within the home for a couple of days, providing him food. There were bottles of urine within the room, which indicated he had been in there for a little while. Frank Reeves and Amaker both exchanged gunfire. Reeves suffered a gunshot to the chest, and Amaker was shot in the arm and leg. Both taken to a hospital. Amaker remains hospitalized. Amaker faces several charges, including attempted murder, possession of a controlled substance, and possession of a firearm with an altered serial number. Because Amaker is a convicted felon, federal charges are forthcoming. And you wouldn't believe this, y'all, but according to the story out from this town in Alabama about these two, this Peyton place, if you will, story, the story says that drugs played a role in the incident. No way! Come on! Deputies noted that Tracy Reeves, the woman here, was intoxicated at the time of the shooting and was too incoherent to be interviewed. Huh. I think they call cases like this trash. This is just southern trash at its best, it sounds like. Deputies said that Amaker is well-known in the methamphetamine community and has multiple past charges of manufacturing and possessing, possessing a controlled substance. But old Tracy, lover girl that she is, how about having her lover hidden away in her own home and her gun-toting husband ends up being in the home too and ultimately a, a lover's quarrel. This is why we need to bring back duels. Alexander Hamilton would be proud and let these people go out and take care of business and not bother the rest of the world with their stupidity, don't you think? Is that a good southern thing to, to bring up, dueling? <laughs> Not dueling banjos. Uh, That's a different kind of story. All right, to Washington, D.C. Can you believe this story? The woman in charge of intelligence before the Capitol riot back on January 6th is back in her job. 
Yogananda Pittman was the Capitol Police official that led intelligence operations when thousands of Trump fans, and according to some of the Trump people, Antifa was there too, although I don't think there's that much evidence of that. But regardless, I won't say thousands of protesters went to the Capitol or in the Capitol. It was more like several hundred but the woman who was in charge of intelligence is back on the job, and she has no business. I mean, this is a gross mistake. This woman maybe should have been prosecuted for negligence, for not heeding the warning signs that these people were going to be, first of all, upset. They were upset with what was happening with the 2020 election. But secondly, they're going to be there steps away from the Capitol regardless because they were having a big rally with President Trump that day. Don't you think it would have made sense to have a couple of layers of security? Instead, it was an absolute disaster. And now Yoga Nanda Pittman, elevated to acting chief after then-chief Stephen Sun, was forced to resign after the deadly riot, deadly only because Capitol Police shot a woman who could have been committing a crime. I mean, I guess standing in the door, broken glass, is a crime, but should she have been murdered? That's debatable. But she ends up coming in the ranks, going to acting chief, and she was passed over last month for the role of permanent chief, but she's back on the job in her role as the head of intelligence operations for the United States Capitol Police Only in America, is what they say. Only in America would the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill have their dean step down after a controversy to help a woman get tenure. Susan King had been the dean of the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media since 2012, and now she's stepping down after this big brouhaha over 1619 Project founder Nicole Jones's effort to get a job there at the UNC School of Journalism, but more importantly, to get tenure. And officials at UNC did not want to give her tenure, and that caused a big national story. Ultimately, they said, okay, we'll give you the tenure. And then ultimately, Nicole Jones said, you know what, UNC, even though I went there and got my master's, in journalism, I'm going to take my toys and run off to Howard University and be a professor at this historically black college and university in Washington, D.C. All of that drama for nothing. But this dean of the Hussman School of Journalism and Media, Susan King, stepping down after this controversy earlier in the summer over 1619 Project founder, Nicole Jones. Susan King will conclude her service as dean, but will remain in place until a successor is named, according to a letter addressed to the UNC community this week. As the chancellor of UNC, Kevin Guskowitz, says, her emphasis on creating experiment, experiential learning, go study that word real quick at the UNC School of Journalism, Opportunities for students, increasing faculty support, and upgrading facilities to reflect media innovation are among the reasons media and journalism is now the university's second largest measure. Well, why is she leaving? 
<laughs> Why is she stepping down? Again, go back, if you will, back to June when the Pulitzer Prize winning Nicole Jones ended up turning down UNC's offer to come be a tenured professor to instead go to Howard University in Washington, D.C., which I think might be one of the places she got a degree from as well as UNC. So that the higher education news out of North Carolina today. Now to Georgia, and a board there is reviewing Fulton County's elections, and a takeover is possible coming out of the state of Georgia. All of this follows the state of Georgia's sweeping new voting laws that have gone into effect and have led to lots of boycotts like the All-Star Game. Georgia's state election board today took a step toward a possible eventual takeover of elections in the state's most populous county. The board voted unanimously today to approve a bipartisan three-person review panel to investigate the handling of elections in Fulton County, this Democratic stronghold that includes most of the city of Atlanta. The attacks against the Fulton County elections comes after President Donald Trump claimed without evidence that fraud in the county contributed to his narrow loss in the state. I'm not so sure that statement's true. I don't know where it was in the Atlanta area, but you might have seen that video of boxes magically appearing in the middle of the night on election night. I think it was in Fulton County. could have been another county. But this panel, again, unanimously going forward with this possible takeover of the Fulton County elections. Fulton County, by the way, accounts for about 11% of Georgia's electorate. And Joe Biden won 73% of the votes cast in Fulton County back in November. Fulton County... I didn't realize this, is 45.5% white, 44.5% black, 7.6% Asian, and then I don't know what that all breaks down is that 100%, but it is a majority white county. I, I did not realize that. And that story today out of Georgia and its elections. We'll have more headlines as we continue on with the Y'all Show, so keep it locked right here. As we take a break, when we come back, we've got a quick look at some Southern sports headlines going on across the Southeast. This is Talk with a Southern Accent. Don't forget, later this hour, we'll take you to Texas as author Sandra Brown has her new book, Blind Tiger. It's at number three this week on the New York Times bestsellers list. We'll discuss that and more on Book Talk coming up later this hour. We're y'all, and we're coming right back. Ever since I was a baby, I loved to hear the train whistle blow. I used to walk down a track and wonder where the freight trains go. When I was old enough, I flagged a truck on the big highway. And 
I never look back So don't you ask me How long I'm gonna stay Cause I was born ready For leaving this town Ain't never seen a road I didn't want to go down Girl, I was born ready So don't you cry When you wake up one morning And I'm waving goodbye 803-816-1170 Those are the magic numerals For you to pull out that phone Or whatever device you have that can text and text your little heart away here on the y'all show we want to hear from all y'all we have this segment here set up to talk about southern sports and if you're thirsty out there don't do like i did now to get kind of set for this segment don't do like me and go get you some sweet tea technically i think it was about half unsweet half sweet and that reminds me I've had two occasions where I've gone into restaurants in the last couple of days, and I said I wanted half sweet tea, and before I could tell them I wanted the other half unsweet, the lady on the other side on both occasions said, oh, you want the other half lemonade? No, I don't want an Arnold Palmer. I want half sweet and half unsweet. But I'm sure an Arnold Palmer uh, here in the month of August is probably delish maybe i should take the signs maybe somebody somewhere is want me to have that good old Arnold palma and enjoy the summertime in the south let me tell you about instead of sweet tea and arnold palmers let me tell you as we start our headlines from across the southeast right now on y'all talk with a southern accent let me tell you about kool-aid let me tell you about gaquincy mckinstry What a name for this Alabama Crimson Tide football player. He's a freshman at the Capstone in Tuscaloosa. Quincy McKinstry, actually on his official University of Alabama bio, has had his name changed. This was a story we told you about a couple of months ago. Mr. McKinstry changed his name as he entered campus in his official bio on RollTide.com. He is actually Kool-Aid McKinstry. Quincy Kool-Aid McKinstry. Now, if this guy doesn't have a future, I don't know who does. Well, with the new rules in place for college athletes to make a little dough, it didn't take a rocket scientist up in Huntsville to help out. Kool-Aid McKinstry has inked a name-image-likeness deal with... (sighs) Do I really have to tell you? Can you not read between the pitcher? Not P-I-C-T-U-R-E, the pitcher. Can you not read between the lines and figure this one out? Yeah. This guy has got him a name, image, likeness with Kool-Aid. Mr. McKinstry is going to start making money off this. A five-cent makes two quarts of Kool-Aid, Kool-Aid. Nine great flavors to drink you love. Kool-Aid, Kool-Aid. For the very best drink you ever made. Kool-Aid. Sure that the envelope says 
All right, catchy little team there and catchy football player for Nick Saban's ball club. And, of course, when he put this out on social media that he had become an official spokesperson for Kool-Aid, Quincy McKinstry, Mr. Kool-Aid himself, whose Twitter handle is at Kool-Aid. How in the world did he pull that one off? At Kool-Aid on Twitter. He puts out a tweet that says, oh, yeah, (laughs) which, of course, is another marketing slogan of this company. And a cool-looking illustration of him. Not really him. It's his arm, his very muscular arm, embracing the Kool-Aid man. Is that is that the Kool-Aid? What is that mascot? I should know because I don't know about y'all, but I actually have had a few Kool-Aids in my time. And that's a cute little mascot thing that the Kraft Heinz company has is it is it the, yeah it's the Kool-Aid man I should have known that a anthropomorphic pitcher filled with Kool-Aid and it is the mascot of Kool-Aid what how could I not have known the Kool-Aid man it's been it's been a while Kool-Aid man made his first appearance back in 1954 and the official version of Kool-Aid man came out in 74 and this mascot. I wonder if we can get Kool-Aid Man and Big Al, the Crimson Tide's official mascot, to perhaps team up. Kool-Aid. And there's a lot of young people. There's a lot of athletes probably that love them some Kool-Aid. And I, I just can't think that this is nothing but a win-win-win for college football, for Alabama, and definitely for Mr. Kool-Aid, the latest college athlete to benefit from the name, image, likeness. And again, Quincy Kool-Aid McKinstry with a notice out on social media this week that he's got this name, image, likeness deal with Kool-Aid. And this illustration shows a cartoon of his, what looks like his arm. I won't say shaking hands, but kind of doing a strong arm grab with the Kool-Aid man. And it's got McKinstry's autograph right there beside it. Pretty cool. I hope he makes a lot of money. If nothing else, he's getting a lot of attention off this thing. And Kool-Aid Man actually put out his own tweet in regards of Kool-Aid McKinstry signing up. He said, so does this mean I get to shout, oh, yeah, if I want when I walk into a new room? Hmm. I would think so. I got to double check this. Does Kool-Aid McKinstry actually have the domain of at Kool-Aid? I think that's right. That's what it said when I saw his post let's check this if he pulled that off i mean somebody at kool-aid at craft is not doing their job he does have the twitter handle at k-o-o-l-a-i-d how is that possible that kool-aid which has been around what did i say at least 70 years or so how could they not have that domain name and now they've got Mr. Kool-Aid, not the Kool-Aid man, but the, the man that's named Kool-Aid, Quincy McKinstry. <laughs> uh, how in the world did they let this kid, that's what he is, he's a kid in, t- in Alabama, 
take over this social media profile. Uh, beyond. But, hey, that's that's the big story. Kool-Aid in the news in T-Town, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Also in the news in Columbia, South Carolina, Luke Doty went down with an injury, sprained his foot the other day at a Gamecock scrimmage as Shane Beamer's team is getting ready to start the 2021 season against Eastern Illinois that first weekend of college football. Luke Doty was, at the time, one of four quarterbacks on the Gamecocks roster. Well, he goes down. That only leaves three quarterbacks on the roster. And it was only three because they had pulled over, I think, is it DeCarion Joyner? Did I have that name right? The guy that had been the quarterback at one time, but then they moved him back to receiver. They had to bring him back to quarterback after Doty, who had some snaps and did good in a few games, didn't get enough wins, frankly. But the Gamecocks bringing Joyner back to the quarterback position maybe as a Band-Aid effort to get him some snaps in case he's needed to carry on Joyner. Yeah, he is a player who is a South Carolina native, I think. He is actually out of North Charleston's Fort Dorchester High School is number five to carry on Joyner. And he was actually a co-offensive player this spring, listed as an offensive player. And Beamer even hinted it. We, we heard him talk this week about Joyner coming over playing quarterback, but they're not going to brand him as anything. Quarterback, he might end up being a running back in some of the options that they have there in Columbia heading into the 2021 season. But what we do know, though, is Doty is questionable for week one. And as a result of that, Shane Beamer has called in a guy named Zeb Noland into his office. Zeb Noland, a.k.a. graduate assistant coach Zeb Noland. Noland, a few years ago, was the starting quarterback for the Iowa State Cyclones of the Big 12. He left there and went to North Dakota State. And at North Dakota State, he was Trey Lance's backup. In his collegiate career, Nolan has thrown for over 1,200 yards and six touchdowns. He's got a lot of experience. He's got a lot of experience playing in big-time games. He played against Oklahoma. Shane Beamer remembered that. And now, this guy who goes to the University of South Carolina to be a graduate assistant coach, he's still got one year of eligibility, and Shane Beamer says, you know what? Would you like to come be a little quarterback for us? And Zeb Nolan's got a real chance to take over the starting quarterback role. Even if Doty's back, it's about winning. It's about winning now. And if Zeb Nolan gives Shane Beamer the opportunity to win more than any of these other guys, look for him to have the reins at quarterback. Because as Shane Beamer has pointed out, Zeb Nolan has more experience than all the other guys combined as a college quarterback. In fact, Zeb Nolan was playing college football in games that mattered only about five months ago because he was the quarterback at North Dakota State when they had their spring season in FCS football. So a change there with the Gamecock football program with a guy that was a graduate assistant coach. I, as I mentioned, hour one, I've not seen a graduate assistant coach ever asked to come off the bench or 
leave the bench, I guess would be the best uh, way of summing that up, and take off the red shirt of being a coach and say, no, we need you as a player, not a coach. Even though you've got your degree, you don't have to play. We need you. All right, one last college football note before we move over to book talk. College football's best returning players for 2021. Bleacher Report has this article up right now. And among the players listed as the best returning players is Georgia Bulldog offensive lineman Jamari Salyer. He's listed this big force, a five-star lineman in the 2018 class. And he's going to be a force for Kirby Smart's program in 2021. Another guy from a smaller school in the South, Liberty Flames quarterback Malik Willis, listed as one of the best returning players in all of college football for 2021. He helped lead the Liberty Flames to a 10-1 record. They won the Cure Bowl over the Coastal Carolina Chanticleers. He got over 2,200 yards passing in 2020. Hugh Freeze pumped about this young man. Well, Manny Diaz is pretty pumped about his Hurricane quarterback, De'Eric King. King has battled injuries in recent seasons, and now he's back at quarterback. King led Miami to an 8-3 record, and he's back after tearing his ACL in the right knee during the Cheez-It Bowl, but should be the starting quarterback when the Miami Hurricanes, when the U suits up against Alabama in that opening Weekend Again, Bleacher Report has this article up of college football's best returning players for 2021. Might want to look into that if you get a chance and see how your favorite team stacks up in terms of who's coming back on the gridiron in 2021. More of y'all is coming right back. We are going to hear from a great Texas writer. It is Sandra Brown. She's got the brand new book, Blind Tiger. It is one of the top five books on the New York Times bestsellers list. She just did an interview about her new book, and we will let you hear a portion of that when our author spotlight comes up right after this. back on y'all you know what is a precious thing and that is a new book and texas author sandra brown has the new read it's out right now called blind tiger this book debuts on the new york times bestsellers list this week at number three what an impressive feat for this fort worth raised 73 year old redhead from the lone star state In this new book, 
I'll give you the brief description of it before I let you hear from Sandra Brown herself. The year 1920 comes in with a roar in this rousing and suspenseful novel by number one New York Times bestselling author Sandra Brown. Prohibition is the new law of the land, but murder, mayhem, lust, and greed are already institutions in the moonshine capital of Texas. That sounds like a great read. And Sandra Brown who has had great success in her career. She has written all types of books, starting back in 1981 with Love's Encore, as books under her own name in the Bantam Doubleday Dell's Love Swept Category Romance book. She's had probably 14 books that she's put out in the last 20 years. And then she's had all kinds of thrillers and just... I mean, she's a writing force. That's all I can say. And she's had works under her own name and under the pen names of Rachel Ryan, Laura Jordan, and Erin St. Clair. Sandra Brown, now with this latest book, she puts her name right on the cover. There's no doubt about what this woman from Texas is doing. She actually worked at one time after she got married. She worked in Tyler, Texas as a weather force weather forecaster at KLTV and then she became a reporter on PM Magazine for WFAA TV (laughs) so she's had a lot of work through her years her book Seeing Red was published in 2017 her book Tailspin got on the New York Times bestsellers list back in August of 2018 and now with this brand new book called Blind Tiger Sandra Brown, the Texas author, is making good on her best-selling promise. Courtesy of a bookstore in Tucson, Arizona, or is it Flagstaff? Somewhere out in Arizona. It's a great bookstore called the Poison Pen Bookstore. Barbara Peters is with that bookstore, and she just had a chance to interview Sandra Brown the other day about Blind Tiger. And let's go in courtesy of the Poison Pen Bookstore's YouTube page and listen to a portion of this great interview that Barbara Peters had with the Texas writer Sandra Brown. Enjoy it right now as our Southern Author Spotlight on today's Y'all Show. When I started doing my research, when I was looking into the cities, you know, like Chicago or New York, which is what people call to mind when they think about prohibition, you know, they think about the Al Capones and and more in the Midwest and in the Northeast. But in Texas, you know, they didn't have that many automobiles yet. This is 1920. I mean, it's right, you know, at the beginning, at the onset of that decade. And um, so I had to find out how far the telephone lines went. Did they have long distance? Uh, how far the railroad went because there was still this broad breast of Texas that didn't have the railroad. Um, a lot of people that lived in the country uh, still had outhouses, not indoor plumbing, although the you know the town folk did. So it was it was really interesting to see how rustic some of it was, and of course it was still sort of the, kind of the wild west too. And I guess you might say that. When I set out to write this book, it was how the Old West 
was meeting, you know, the onset of the modern era of the United States. And it really was a pivotal time in terms of all of these societal issues. Um, the men coming home from an unpopular war, um, the women after decades of struggle, uh, the women's movement at that point in time was suffrage, and they were granted suffrage in uh, January of that year, 1920, and January 16th of that year, nobody could buy a drink because <laughs> prohibition went into effect. Um, so it was it was very interesting doing the research, and and once I got into it, I thought, gosh, this is what I've got to write about. You know, the story just started emerging, and these characters just started emerging. One of the uh, interesting things to me was um, that it was at the right time too that they that the suffrage uh, became law because. Um, when the men, and there were tens, hundreds of thousands of soldiers that went to World War One, and um, they, women filled the jobs that they left behind. So then when the war, the war only lasted 18 months, but in that 18 months, women got a taste of what it was like not to do the ironing and the cooking and the child raising, and that was it. You know, they got a taste of what it was like to work outside the home. So then when the men came back, it was a real societal shift that women were like, wait a minute, you know, I have to go back into the traditional role, and I don't get to, to do the jobs anymore. So it created a real, uh, you know, as I say, a societal shift it was it was that was seismic in terms of uh our society our um economy uh everything and then this was all going on at the same time that soldiers were, were you know they had post-traumatic stress it was a loss of innocence for americans in many ways because these men had been exposed to european mores and rules of society that America had not, you know, they were still very Puritan in many ways in their thinking. And so the men came back with new ideas. The women had taken their place in a lot of instances. And this is what I found interesting because last year when I was, I was stuck uh, in lockdown away from my family for two months, and I had to start thinking of a new book to write. And I thought, well, one thing I know I'm not going to write about <laughs> is COVID-19. And I'm not going to write about all the other issues that were going on at that point in time. So I thought, what was going on 100 years ago? And when I look back, it, nothing was all that different. <laughs> we still had the same issues, you know, going on. They had a Me Too movement, too. But it was just about suffrage. Um, so all of these things, that's what made the, the time period interesting to me, is to see really how relatable their problems were to our problems now. They haven't changed all that much. That's Texas author Sandra Brown talking about her brand new book, Blind Tiger. That book is in the top five of the New York Times bestsellers list. And I'll tell you about some of those other books in the top five when we come back after this short timeout. You're listening to Book Talk on the Y'all Show. Talk with a Southern accent.
right, wrapping up hour two of this Y'all Show Wednesday edition with a quick look at the books that are in the top five of the New York Times bestsellers list. We just spent several minutes in the previous segment telling you all about Sandra Brown's book, Blind Tiger. It's at number three. What's at number one this week? It's the brand new book from author Stephen King, Billy Summers, a killer for hire who takes out bad guys, seeks redemption as he does one final job. Stephen King's Billy Summers out this week, and it's number one on the New York Times bestsellers list. Laura David, she hangs hangs tall at number two. Laura Dave's book, The Last Thing He Told Me, checks in at two on the combined print and ebook fiction list. The aforementioned Sandra Brown's Blind Tiger, number three on the New York Times fiction list. At number four, it's been out for two months on the list, Colleen Hoover's It Ends With Us. And wrapping up the top five of the New York Times best-selling books fiction category, People We Meet on Vacation by Emily Henry. And the top five nonfiction books, according to the NYT, Mark R. Levin's American Marxism is number one, holding firm in that spot now for a month. Brand new this week, the whistleblower, Donald Trump's good friend, Alexander Vindman, his book, Here Right Matters. That book debuts at number two this week. Another Trump-themed book, I Alone Can Fix It by Carol Leoning and Philip Rucker. The Pulitzer Prize winning reporters teaming up for this Trump-themed book, I Alone Can Fix It. It's number three on the nonfiction category this week. This book's been out over a, about right about a year now. Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score. It's number four. And the uber-talented writer Michael Lewis's The Premonition. That's also about the Trump administration. It is about their handling of COVID-19. That book is at number five on the New York Times bestsellers list here this week. And that is a quick look at the various books out right now from the New York Times bestsellers list. That will put hour two in the books. And when we come back in hour three, we will have all the sports goings on today, tell you a whole lot more about the Texas A&M Aggies as the Aggies are our featured school on our look at all things college football, getting you ready for the start of the 2021 season. It's Aggie Talk coming up. We'll tell you about the traditions of Texas A&M, famous alumni, as well as more about the university itself. That plus more news stories of the day. Don't miss out on the fun. 803-816-1170 is how you can get in touch with y'all. We'll be right back. Highway 51. I'm right by my baby Joe. It's the last hour here in our little couple of hour get together we have that we call the Y'all Show. I'm General John Rawl, CSA Certified Southern American. Y'all.com is our website if you are a fellow Southern American. We would love to have you drop on by and check out this show that we have posted at y'all.com or any of the other fun stuff that we put up, whether it's great stories or great videos. We, we just got a little bit for all y'all at y'all.com. 
Dixiecafe.com. Broadcasting from the Dixie Cafe. Thank you all for being with us on great radio stations across the southeast and in podcast form. We're on Spotify. We are on iHeartRadio's app, the Apple Podcast app. Just search for y'all show on all of the aforementioned podcast options. You also can find us on Stitcher. I think that's a pretty good list of places you can find the also. So do us a small favor. Follow us, like us, subscribe, and just keep up with us because we have something good going and growing here with this show that's all about the Southeast. Now today in this final hour of the Y'all Show, come along for the journey. We've got more headlines that we'll be sharing with you. We'll be telling you more about Texas A&M as it's all about Aggie traditions here in this hour. And we'll also discuss some of the famous alumni of Texas A&M University, a member of the Southeastern Conference. We have that coming up here in hour number three. So stick around, get your gigum together, and learn about Texas A&M and what they do. And they do things in Aggie land just a little bit different. If you're not an Aggie, that is. If you're an Aggie, you're like, I can't believe the rest of college football doesn't do it this way. Well, well, they don't. We'll have all that coming your way in just a handful of minutes. Again, let's get into the stories today of what's going on across the South. We'll start off this hour with a few sports headlines. And those sports, line, those sports headlines include from the NFL. How about a disappointing land shark? And that's evidently the case with Greg Little. As the Carolina Panthers have sent Greg Little to the Miami Dolphins in a roster move here today, they traded this offensive tackle to Miami in exchange for a 2022 seventh-round pick. Little was a second-round pick for Carolina in 2019 and had gone down on the depth chart after injuries and just hasn't lived up to being an NFL player. In fact, according to the Panthers' own website, panthers.com, they said that there was no guarantee this second rounder from just two years ago was even going to make the roster. Greg Little played his college football at the University of Mississippi, and now he's part of the Miami Dolphins, but on a very, very, very short leash as he's making the best case to get out of the NFL based on some of his play in Charlotte. Now, he might turn it around on South Beast. South Beach. Other roster moves today in the NFL was cut day, the first cut, where I think they had to get down to 85 on their roster, and they'll drop it down another five next week from what I gather from the NFL circles. The Panthers also released fullback Rod Smith. They waived center Mike Panasic and waived linebacker Nate Hall. They also placed Troy Pride Jr. on injured reserve as part of the moves to get to the 85-man roster limit. Troy Pride Jr., who's been a pretty good player for Carolina in the secondary, he suffered a right knee injury during the preseason game at Indianapolis and had to be carted off the field. Troy Pride Jr. was the fourth-round pick in the 2020 draft, and he had been injured throughout the offseason 
He played in 14 games last year with eight starts, had 41 tackles and two passes. But Troy Pride Jr. now on injured reserve. I don't know if that means his entire season is shelved and he won't be back with the Carolina Panthers in 2021. Let's see if I can't pull up another team in the NFL in the South with this breaking news today of roster moves and more. Okay, 2021 Titans roster cuts on what they call cut-down day, the first cut-down day. Looks like they've parted ways with offensive lineman Paul Adams. He's been waived. The Titans place Trevon Coley, defensive back Tedrick Thompson on injured reserve, and waived this Paul Adams guy. And is there another? Let's see. This is all kind of breaking today, so bear with me as I go through. The Titans also agreed to terms with safety Jamal Carter, who had played with the Falcons in recent times. So that's the Titans update. Let's see if I can't get a Falcons 2021 cuts. Let's see. Falcons have waived John Atkins. And they signed defensive lineman Eli Anko, who I believe was with the Cleveland Browns. And they released two players ahead of Tuesday's cut deadline. So John Atkins, one of those guys that was released by the Atlanta Falcons. Okay, sorry, this is, again, kind of happening in real time, so I don't have all this laid out in front of me to start off with. But in the professional world, I will tell you, did you see that awful baseball play from Monday, for the, or rather Tuesday, for the Oakland A's pitcher Chris Bassett? He suffered a cheek fracture from a line drive hit by a Chicago White Sox player right to him. Luckily, the story's coming out of the major league ranks today saying that pitcher Chris Bassett, his vision unaffected by this awful hit that he took right in the face. Bassett has a displaced tripod fracture in his right cheek, and he also received stitches for two facial lacerations. According to the Oakland Athletics, Bassett's vision is normal and that no other eye or head injuries found after he was taken to the hospital in Chicago. In fact, the A's have put out a statement today, we are grateful to the Chicago White Sox, their medical staff, and the doctors and nurses at Rush University Medical Center for their excellent care. We'll have more information on Chris as it becomes available. Now, Chris Bassett did have to be carted off the field in the second inning after he got hit right in the face by White Sox center fielder Brian Goodwin. And this bat speed, the ball speed coming off the bat, was clocked at 100.1 miles per hour. According to A's manager Bob Melvin, the pitcher never lost consciousness. Well, that's a good thing, and we wish him well. Thankfully, thankfully, it looks like he's going to be okay. However, we still are in the dark of whether he's going to be able to finish up the rest of the season for the Oakland A's. And speaking of the A's and their rest of the season, a quick look at the standings of Major League Baseball as we're now less than two months away from – the playoffs of Major League Baseball. 
In the AL East, the Rays enjoy a five-game lead over both the Yankees and the Red Sox. Those two teams have right at the same record, but both trail the Rays by five games in the AL East. AL Central, those White Sox are looking mighty good. Tony LaRusso's ball club, the Southsiders, have a 11-and-a-half game lead over their nearest competition, the Cleveland Guardian Indians. The AL West, when we're talking about the A's, man, I feel sorry for them because losing this pitcher hurts right now. They're in a battle with the Strohs, and the A's currently are two-and-a-half games out of first place in the AL West. Taking it to the National League, what a battle it's been this season in the National League East. And the Atlanta Braves are on a five-game win streak. And the Bravos have a a two-and-a-half-game edge over the Philadelphia Phillies right now. What a great turnaround if you're a Braves fan and for Coach Snitker and what he's done there, the manager of the Atlanta National League Ball Club. Braves with that two-and-a-half lead over the Phillies. The Mets are knocking on the door, too. Mets are four-and-a-half games out of first place in the NLE, NL East. NL Central, the Brew Crew, they've been doing quite well. They're on a three-game win streak, and the Brewers right now have a nine-game lead over the Cincinnati Reds. Cardinals are 11 games out of first place in the NL Central. So something tells me they're still – a lot of battling going to take place, especially in the, in the NL East and NL Central before the postseason arrives. But the Brewers really have turned turned it around, and they lead that division rather comfortably here in mid-August. To the NL West, the best division in baseball. The Giants have a four-game lead. The Giants are 78-42. and 42. They should easily eclipse the 100-game win mark here in 2021. And the Dodgers, the Blue Crew, are just a couple of games out of first place themselves. Dodgers are 74-46, and four games out of first. Padres, 12 games back. They've been really decimated by injuries. The Daddies, 67-55 and overall at this point. According to the projections of making it to the postseason as of right now in the NL West the Giants and Dodgers both have a 99.9% chance of making the postseason other teams that look really good at making the postseason Brewers have a 99.4% chance of making the postseason according to the odds makers and then the NL East the Braves have a 60 2.9% chance of making to the postseason. The Phillies, a 34.4% chance. The Mets, 10% chance. And just, what, seven days ago, the New York Mets were on top of the division. My, how things can change. But things can change back the other way. And while I'm talking about percentages and odds, the Strohs have a 94% chance of making the playoffs. The White Sox, a 100% chance. So I guess they've already clinched. Maybe they have. Uh, White Sox at 70 and 50. Yeah, they're on a roll on the south side. And then in the NL East, the Rays, according to the odds makers, with a 90% chance. The Yankees and Red Sox, both having in the 70th percentile chance of making the postseason. The Red Sox actually with a 77% chance. The Yankees with a 70 
1% chance of playing in October. That's a quick look at some sports news here to start off this final hour of the Y'all Show. When we come back, we're going to tell you about Texas A&M University. Discover this massive school and college station, the history, the Corps of Cadets, and more. We'll also tell you about some famous alumni of A&M, and we'll discuss the traditions, the many traditions of Texas A&M. The Texas Aggies, our featured school today, and we'll get to all of that right after this break. The Y'all Show is on the road and stopping by 44 of the South's great college football towns as we get y'all ready for the start of the 2021 college football season. Tailgates, traditions, fight songs. Can you feel the excitement? Here's Y'all Show host John Rawl to fire y'all up with today's great Southern College Football Showcase. And we are in Aggie Land today as Texas A&M is our latest stop as we get you ready for the start of the 2021 college football season. And few schools in the South, they rival A&M and the tradition and how big a deal they make out of game days at Kyle Field. We're proud to tell you on today's Y'all Show all about the maroon and white of Texas A&M and the famous Texas Aggie marching band. We'll get us all set to learn more about this gigantic member of the Southeastern Conference. A&M starts the 2021 season at Kyle Field on September 4th. Kent State comes down for a ball game in prime time. It'll be 7 o'clock when the Aggies start the 2021 season. They start SEC play in Arlington on September 25th. It's that neutral site contest against the Arkansas Razorbacks, the Southwest Classic. The first game, SEC-wise, at Kyle Field is when the imposters of Texas A&M come in from Stark, Vegas. It's Mississippi State and Texas A&M on October 2nd. Arguably the biggest game on the college football schedule this year is A&M hosting number one Alabama on October 9th. Can Jimbo Fisher's club pull off the huge upset? Could be, and that could turn this program into a big player for a national championship if they can do that one. They, they might just be there anyway this year. It's been quite a while since the Aggies have held a national championship trophy. In fact, it's been all the way back since 1939, the last year they claim a national title in Aggieland. And some people would say, well, that's kind of a disappointment. This is a massive school. Texas A&M has right at 70,000 students. There are cities in the South 
cities that you've all heard of that are smaller than this enrollment at Texas A&M University. This public land-grant research college. This school of farmers, if you will. And Texas A&M student body, by the way, is the second largest in the entire country. And this university is a land, sea, and space grant institution. And it is a big part of Texas's history. In fact, it got its start in 1876. That was prior to the start of a school called the University of Texas. Is A&M's bigger and, and older than those guys in Austin, those guys and gals, I should say. Catherine Banks is the president of A&M at the current time. This school started off in 1862. There was the Morrill Act, and that helped schools kind of start a agriculture curriculum. A&M, after the Civil War, started off in 1876. One of the big parts of Texas A&M history was Sol Ross. Sullivan Ross was his actual name. A former governor of Texas and a former Confederate brigadier general. And Sol Ross came over as president and really kind of set off A&M the way that it's set up today as a big part of the state of Texas. Ross made improvements to the school like adding running water and permanent dormitories. The enrollment doubled. And at that time, people sent their kids to what was called Texas AMC to learn to be like Ross. Texas AMC, again, at this time, the school was a military school that mixed in the agriculture part as well. It, along with Mississippi A&M, Mississippi State Today, Clemson, Auburn, all these southern schools that kind of had that military curriculum mixed in with the agriculture. A lot of Texas A&M graduates went on to serve in the wars of this country. 49% of all graduates of the college were in military service during World War One. In World War II, you had so many Aggies go off and serve and die in service to the country. And they are properly honored at Texas A&M with their sacrifice. And that Corps of Cadets tradition continued at Texas A&M all the way up till the 1960s. It was in the 1960s that A&M, like a lot of schools around the country, recognized that they didn't necessarily need to be a military school alone. So in the 1960s, Texas A&M desegregated. They also allowed women in. And they also dropped the requirement that you had to be in the Corps of Cadets. So when that happened, they grew by leaps and bounds. And that's why Texas A&M today is the second largest college in the entire country. And they have a lot of people who live and die by Texas A&M. And there's so much I can say about it. I'll tell you about some of the traditions of the school in a second. But let me move on now and tell you about some of the famous alumni of Texas A&M, of which they have a whole bunch. And we'll start off with, maybe in the world of politics, Rick Perry, the former governor, who was also in the Trump administration. He's a Texas A&M alum. Let's see if I can't dig up other political figures besides Rick Perry 
And he was all Aggie. I think he was in the Corps of Cadets. And he loved to talk about A&M when he had a chance. The former governor of Arkansas, Frank D. White, is also a Texas A&M alumnus. And I'm not seeing any other governors from the state of Texas or, or anywhere at this point that are A&M alumni. In the world of, I guess, entertainment, Lyle Lovett, did you realize he is a Texas A&M alum? He sure is. Mr. Handsome. I mean, this guy once married Julia Roberts, for goodness sakes. Not a bad track record there, Lyle Lovett. Also, they've got people like Rick Trevino, who was a country music artist back in the 90s on Columbia Records. Granger Smith is an A&M guy. Robert Earl Keane. And Christian musician Shane Bernard is an A&M guy. From the world of film and TV, the star of the TV series Bronco, Ty Harden, an A&M alumnus. You also have Rip Torn. Man, he's in so much stuff. A&M class of 1952 was Rip Torn who had an acting career that spanned more than 60 years. How about Dusty Wolf, pro wrestler with the WWF, WCW, WCCW, and the NWA territories. Wrestler turned from an Aggie. How about that? And then they have also had so many A&M folks who've gone on and served in the military. I think they had over 20 generals during World War II who were A&M alumni. A Medal of Honor recipient, William G. Harold, A&M class of 1943. Another Medal of Honor, a couple of more medals. They've had several. Lloyd Herbert Hughes, Medal of Honor. George D. Keithley, Medal of Honor. Turney W. Leonard, Medal of Honor recipient. That might be all. Nope, one more, class of 41's Eli Whiteley, Medal of Honor. Lots and lots of people involved with Texas A&M. Don't want to leave out Mary Beth Decker, actress and model. She was on Road Rules. She, a Texas A&M alumnus. How about Tiffany Thornton? Actress known for her role as Tony on Sunny with a Chance. In the world of journalism, Neil Bortz is an A&M alumnus. And they also have counted in their list of journalist and more ABC news anchor Stephen Romo, A&M. So a variety of all walks of business. And I really didn't actually give a shout-out to our Texas A&M business alumni, of which if you know anything about the way Texas is set up, so many people in the oil and gas industry are Aggies, and they've gone on and, done incredible work and made lots of money and give a lot of that money back to Texas A&M, frankly. They have had Nobel Prize laureates out the wazoo. They've had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, ten Nobel Prize laureates at Texas A&M. Texas A&M, ten Nobel Prize laureates coming out of that one school. And then in the world of sports, geesh, what a long list of great players who played at Texas A&M. John David Crow, Heisman Trophy winner, 1957, a Texas A&M Aggie. Johnny Manziel, Heisman Trophy winner, A&M second Heisman Trophy winner, a Texas Aggie. 
Don't want to leave out other great players who played in recent times who've gone on and done great things in the NFL. Rodney Thomas, Jason Webster, so many, many great players through the years who've worn the maroon and white. In the world of golf, Ryan Palmer, I see him on the PGA Tour. Cameron Champ, I see him on the PGA Tour. He's an Aggie. And, again, so many great business folks coming out of A&M who are proud to wear that Aggie ring. And that's a tradition, not necessarily an athletic tradition, but Texas A&M, they take great pride in their Aggie ring. There's a special weekend when they get that thing. And I was in College Station several years ago, about three days before that thing, and the hotels were already booked. People were coming in, and it's quite an honor to get your Texas A&M class ring. And they wear it proudly. In fact, they've got a gigantic cast sculpture of that ring that you can go see on the A&M campus. In case you've never seen one close up, you can really see one close up if you have a chance to see that thing there in College Station that was formed and created at a foundry somewhere in the state of Texas. All right, what about those traditions that I mentioned of Texas A&M. I mean, they've got traditions on top of traditions. They've got traditions that they are world-renowned for that unfortunately have had to come to an end, some for a good reason, some because of a lot of deaths, frankly, at the bonfire. That was a Texas A&M tradition. Among the traditions that you'll find, let me refer you to a website, Texas A&M has a website, tamu.edu slash traditions. And that has a big breakdown of so many of the things that happen within the athletic world of Texas A&M, within the Corps of Cadets, what you will find on game day that kind of stands out, all at Texas A&M. Howdy is a tradition. Howdy, that greeting that evidently if you're an Aggie, when somebody tells you howdy, it's a badge of honor. And that's part of the Aggie culture. They have their own terminology when they speak to one another. And they're rooted in history and tradition. As mentioned, the Aggie ring, it goes back to 1889. and is the most recognizable symbol of the Aggie network. And according to Texas A&M, it creates an instant connection between Aggies long after they leave the university. On the campus at Texas A&M, they have the Century Tree. It's over 100 years old, and it has grown along with the university over the decades. It looks like a beautiful live oak tree right on the campus there, the Century Tree. How about pennies on Sully? This started in 1918 as a tradition. You place pennies at the base of the Sol Ross statue on the Texas A&M campus, and that gives Aggies maybe a good little bit of good luck for the Aggie in, in the effort to do good on an upcoming exam. See, I didn't have one of those kind of good luck charms on my college campus, and I failed plenty of, of exams, and I needed a good luck charm like the Sol Ross statue and the tradition of putting pennies on Sully's boot <laughs> at Texas A&M. Now, speaking of Sol Ross statue, there's been some woke people. I believe Kellen Mond, who's now in the NFL, he 
kind of led a very small effort to get the Sol Ross statue removed from A&M's campus because, oh my goodness, Sol Ross, a guy who really made Texas A&M what it is, he was a Confederate general. Or was he a colonel? (laughs) He was up there in the Confederate service. And that, in some people's eye, is a big, big no-no. Can't have that. But luckily, Sol Ross's statue is still there. The brigadier general of Sol Ross and the former governor of the state of Texas, Sol Ross. You also have Reveille. What a great mascot, the Border Collie. Reveille, the official mascot of Texas A&M. And she, that's right, she can often be seen on campus in class or attending at events. She lives with the Corps of Cadets. That's a really cool tradition at A&M. Reveille, the only Border Collie I'm aware of in all of college athletics. And Reveille goes all the way back to 1931 as a Texas A&M tradition. How about another tradition going on at Texas A&M away from the culture of campus and more, we can take you to the core, the core of cadets, which is not that big compared to the 70,000 students. I think the core of cadets at Texas A&M is somewhere around, I'll pull this up and see if it doesn't tell me. It's somewhere around 2,500. I think I saw that one time. I, I might be off a couple of hundred about 45% of the members of the Texas A&M Cadet Corps continue with an ROTC curriculum and go on to receive commissions as officers in the U.S. Armed Forces upon graduation. Texas A&M is one of six U.S. colleges classified as senior military colleges, and it is the largest senior military college. So knowing that, I can tell you how big Texas A&M is because I know what the second largest military school in the country as terms of a senior military school, not your federal service academies. Your second largest is the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, and its enrollment of cadets is around 2,300 cadets. So I think Texas A&M has about 2,500 cadets. And if they've got 2,500 cadets, that means they got about 72,000 non-cadets there on the campus in College Station. So they really are kind of outnumbered, but they stand out. You see them walking around in their cadet uniforms, and it's it's a long tradition that they were able to hold on. Most schools like Texas A&M, the Auburns, the Clemsons, the Mississippi States, they phased out all that kind of stuff. And you wouldn't even hardly know those schools were once all-male military schools that had that agricultural curriculum at one point. Texas A&M, to their credit, and Virginia Tech, in some ways, both kind of holding on to that military element, but (laughs) engulfed by the non-cadets, so I'm not so sure. And I'm criticizing them based on a guy who graduated from that aforementioned school in Charleston, South Carolina. So I think they kind of had it easy because they went to school with a bunch of uh, non-cadets, and they got to look at pretty girls where... If you were a guy like me in an all-male military school environment with no other non-cadets, I guess I'm just jealous, okay? There you have it. Texas A&M's traditions also, in addition with the core, with that core, you have 
the band, and the band at Texas A&M, the marching band, is all cadets, all members of the Corps of Cadets, and they definitely stand out, the, the Aggie band, the famous fighting Texas Aggie band. And it is, the Corps of Cadets is, isn't just the oldest student organization on campus. It's also the most visible. They've got the Ross Volunteers, the famous Texas Aggie band, fighting Texas Aggie band. And they have those boots. You get to wear the boots when you are entering your final year. And that's a big deal to get your boots. And I, they may even have a nickname. Again, in A&M world, they have all kinds of language and lingo. And and I don't, I'm not a, as an outsider, I can't tell you exactly what all they are. One of the other traditions they have is March to the Brazos. Each spring, the Texas A&M Corps of Cadets conducts an 18-mile round-trip road march from campus to the Brazos River to raise money for the March of Dimes. I did not know that. A very cool thing. Now, before we get to game day, a Texas A&M tradition of yesteryear that ended because of the roughly dozen students that died, the, the bonfire, that tradition they had where they would light a bonfire and it collapsed and so many people died. They don't do that quite the way that it was once done, but that was a big A&M tradition. At game days, you will find that famous fighting Texas Aggie band, the largest military marching band in the entire country on display. But the thing also that stands out on a game day at Texas A&M, they don't have cheerleaders. They've got yell leaders, and their yell leaders are all dudes. They're dudes in those white outfits. If you're not an Aggie, you call them milkmen. That's kind of what they look like. And Aggies don't cheer. They yell. And that's why these guys are called yell leaders. And they're dressed in all white on the sidelines directing Texas A&M and its Aggie fans and carefully orchestrated yells. They even have on Friday nights a yell practice. And they'll have tens of thousands of fans show up at Kyle Field to learn the kind of goofy cheers that will be on display the next day at a home football game. <laughs> they have all kinds of Aggie songs, including the Aggie War Hymn. That's a Texas A&M tradition. Aggie War Hymn, we played that earlier. It goes all the way back to World War One, And it has the war, the song has the lyrics, Hullabaloo, Connect, Connect. They have the spirit of Aggieland, the alma mater of Texas A&M. Those are some of the songs and the sounds you'll hear at a Texas A&M game. Of course, another tradition going all the way back 100 years ago, the 12th man. And it's recognized as one of the greatest traditions in all of college athletics. They've even gone up, gone up against the Seattle Seahawks of the NFL fighting for this 12th man tradition. And it has earned the university the designation of home of the 12th man. And that is a neat tradition. And then in addition for the crowd being the 12th man, Texas A&M some 20-plus years ago started the 12th man out on the field where a walk-on, if you will, a person off the sideline, a person out of the stands got to be part of the Texas A&M football team and got to actually play in a game. 
Maroon out is another game day tradition. The game day tradition once caused a temporary national shortage of maroon T-shirts. Maroon out, an A&M tradition. Again, this school's got so many things, so many. It's not fair for me to squeeze them all into about 25 years or 25 minutes. I mean, we're not even talking about muster, which is a long-time tradition at Texas A&M. Well, they honor A&M alumni who've died in the last year. The bonfire memorial, going back to that deadly 1999 bonfire we were mentioning mentioning earlier. Texas A&M, if you get a chance, again, the website is tamu.edu slash traditions. This website does a fantastic job of breaking it all down and letting you hear about this SEC school's traditions and so much more. And I just saw today in getting ready for this article, I didn't even look for this thing. This thing popped up as a news story today. I don't think they do this anymore, or if they do, they might have renamed it. But Texas A&M at one point had a tradition during college football games of something called a junk squeeze. Fanbuzz.com has this article up. You'll just have to go read all about it and see it. they got a video of junk squeeze. If you want to learn about this so-called tradition at Texas A&M, going back some years and again this is a school that's got a whole bunch of traditions some might be a little bit way out of left field as in the case of this particular event that Aggie fans have enjoyed through the years that wraps up our latest stop across college football's great teams and traditions and alumni and more we are getting you ready for Labor Day weekend and the arrival of the 2021 college football season Coming up on the Thursday Y'all Show, we'll be stopping by Charlottesville. It's all about the Virginia Cavaliers as we get you set up for what's going on with Bronco Mendenhall's 2021 ball club and more of the fun and pageantry of UVA. It's all about the Who's on Thursday. Friday, we'll be talking Kentucky Wildcat fun. Coming up on the Y'all Show, a quick look at some of the headlines of the day. We'll be right back on Talk With a Southern Accent. Gig them, Aggies. back on talk with a southern accent the clock on the wall gives us only a couple more minutes left here so let's kind of wrap things up with a quick look at some more headlines going on across dixie today and a story out of west virginia are involving a mountain state man this businessman from morgantown west virginia accused in the capital rioting is still in jail despite a recent court decision for him to get the heck out of there. 
Almost 10 days after an appeals court said this businessman from Morganton, West Virginia, and his name is George Pierre Tanios. He's 37 years old, and he is still in jail. And a first assistant federal defender appealed the detention order, keeping Tanios behind bars early this week, filed an unopposed motion to expedite the appeals court mandate. Earlier today, the appeals court granted his motion and a mandate's there. But according to the story, this 39-year-old West Virginian still jailed despite a court decision to get him out of there. And I don't know if he's even been charged. He's pleaded not guilty in his presumed innocence, Mr. Tanios, from Morganton, West Virginia. Now, earlier this week, Federal Assistant Federal Defender Richard Walker had contacted Assistant U.S. Attorney Patricia Hefferton, who was handling the appeal for the government. She advised that the government didn't intend to file for a rehearing and didn't object to or oppose the expedited issuance of the mandate, according to Walker's motion. So very legal what's going on. This man has been jailed for five months. That's just three months less than Capitol rider Paul Hodgins received for entering the Capitol approximately half an hour after lawmakers were cleared out of the building. Hodgins pleaded guilty to obstruction of an official proceeding. But again, in jail for five months, he's pleaded not guilty and he's still in jail, even though he's been told to get out of jail. This is why this whole thing is iffy at best. Or, or, yeah, iffy at best and, and, and downright un-American, what a lot of these people have had to go through. And serving all these months for going into the Capitol, which was not something you should do, and they should be penalized, but my goodness, a lot of these people haven't been charged with anything more than parading. Parading. And they spend seven months in jail. Some of them still in jail. Some of them doesn't look like, like they're getting out any time soon. Just... Rather bizarre. Now to a business story. Can you name South Carolina's busiest airport? You got Greenville Spartanburg. That's a pretty busy airport. You got the Columbia Metropolitan Airport. You got the Charleston International Airport. None of those three airports are the busiest in the Palmetto State. Myrtle Beach has set a record for its highest monthly passenger count. And it set it for the highest monthly passenger count ever recorded in South Carolina. The Myrtle Beach International Airport had more than a half a million passengers in July alone. And that is the highest monthly passenger count ever recorded at an airport in the history of South Carolina. Second in flight. I'm kidding on that. Of course, North Carolina still has on their tag first in flight because of the Wright brothers testing there but south carolina now having myrtle beach kenny powers would be proud total passenger traffic there in myrtle beach which includes both arriving and departing passengers totaling 547,000. that is a 49 percent increase from a year ago the number of people arriving on flights in july totaled 274,000. you know i've even looked at flying into myrtle beach because I think a big part of the reason these numbers are so astronomical 
Southwest Airlines is now flying into Myrtle Beach from a lot of cool places like Nashville, I think, has a direct flight into Myrtle Beach. And a lot of people have gone to Myrtle Beach. It's it's a place that in the past you kind of had to want to go to in a car, not necessarily a plane. And I've told you before, I used to have a partnership with y'all with Hooters Airline, which was based in Myrtle Beach. And Mr. Brooks there used to put y'all magazines, of which your boy here was the publisher, as the in-flight magazine of Hooters Air. And then he died, and they don't do that anymore. And they don't even have Hooters Airways. But they <laughs> they don't have Hooters flying into Myrtle Beach, but they got a lot of other airline, airlines like Southwest. And that is why, congratulations, what a, what a good business story out of the Grand Strand as Myrtle Beach gets that highest passenger count ever recorded in South Carolina. Last, that's a magical story, but not quite as magical as we wrap up our headlines across the southeast today. How about former Philadelphia Eagle pro bowler, long snapper, John Dorenbos? After his NFL career wound down and it's come to an end, this big, gigantic former NFL player has shifted over into a new career. John Dornbos is a magician, and he's going to be performing this weekend at MGM National Harbor, which is in Maryland, but about a chip shot away from Washington, D.C. And pretty cool, this humble Texas native discovered magic to cope with his tragic childhood. When he was 12 years old, his father murdered his mother. And he and his sister went into intense therapy and temporary foster care. He discovered football, which meant he could get out the aggression and anger. And he ended up playing in the NFL after a career as a long snapper at UTEP. Played for the Titans for two years and then 12 years for the Philadelphia Eagles. And now he's a magician. And if you're lucky enough to be in the Washington, D.C. area this weekend, you can see this... (laughs) Pro Bowler and his magic show performing at MGM National Harbor. What a story. John Dorenbos. And that will wrap up our headlines here of hour number three. We'll wrap up the entire show right after this. Stay tuned. It's y'all talk with a Southern accent. Thank you for being a part of the fun. Come to the end of the fun here on this middle of the week edition of Talk with a Southern Accent. Want to thank you for being along for the ride. We will be right back here come Thursday with more Southern Fun. Our Spotlight School and our college tour across the South will be the Virginia Cavaliers, and we'll take you to Charlottesville and learn about Bronco Mendenhall's Ball Club and tell you about some of the rich traditions of this ACC school. That's ahead on the Thursday Y'all Show, that plus some business news, entertainment news out of Nashville. John Rawl signing off. Thank you for listening to Y'all Powered by Y'all.com.